if you've been out of town for a couple of weeks, uh, you have found us in the early part of the book of Philippians, and that's probably going to be a true statement for at least a couple of more weeks, uh, that we are in the early part of the book of the Philippians. Uh, we're going verse by verse, just kind of walking our way through this, trying to get an understanding of what was so important that Paul wrote to these people in Philippi. You see, at the heart of it, it is a letter of thanksgiving. It is a letter of thanks for the support that the Philippians have given Paul. You see, but they would have also heard about the situation that Paul faces. Paul, as he sits in likely a Roman jail cell, and when they hear about that situation, the temptation is to say, Paul's in jail. I mean, this thing is done. Paul, he did a great job here in Philippi. He's done a great job in some other places, but for all intents and purposes, Paul has kind of, he's, he's maxed out his potential because of the situation that he's found himself in. So what Paul offers us here in verses 12, in the first half of verse 18, he shows us the difference between perception and reality. So what we're looking at today is the difference between perception and reality. Let me read these verses for us, and then we'll dig in. Starting in verse 12 of chapter 1, Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word, This is how he qualifies it. He says, without fear. Verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. In verse verse 18, he wraps it up. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So as Paul opens this up for us, he, he addresses them. And this is a shift away, and in, in 1 through 11, we see the substance of Paul's prayer. Do you remember it when we went through it? In verse 9, he said, I want that you would abound in love more and more. And then he goes on to describe it. He says, in knowledge and discernment. He starts to give some qualifiers for what, their, what, their, what his prayer, what their love should embody. And in here, verse 12, he turns and he says, guys, I want you to know something. And he addresses them as brothers. Now, lest we skip over this, and there are those men in this room that are nodding and saying, that's right. He's talking to the men. This is a letter to men. Now he's come to the men section. Maybe you saw the uh, ministry moment last week and you said this is, this is Paul giving his own minutes ministry announcement. You see, when Paul throws out this word adelphoi, when he uses the plural of brothers here, he's saying something akin to, hey guys, this afternoon we're going to have a youth fundraiser. Uh, everybody's invited. So he's not restricting it on the basis of gender. Instead, he's using a term that would have been familiar to them in that time to catch everybody. So he's saying, I want everybody. Well, let's stop and think about that for a second. If you refer to them as brothers, what does that mean? Are they, are they like the, the crab trees or the shires and they just have lots and lots of children? Or Tim, uh, Tim Lawless led worship for us a minute ago. I probably didn't know this. Tim is one of 11. 
Um, and so maybe there's just a lot of these people there, and he says, you know what? Let's just call them all brothers. Let's just say one big happy family. You see, their familial relationship, their family relationship, isn't founded upon a, a good mother and a good father, but it is founded upon their shared blood through Jesus. It's not that they receive this DNA from their, from their earthly mother and father, and that's why they call themselves brother and sister. But you and I today, and in many Baptist circles, refer to one another as brother and sister because we have this identity in Christ. And his shed blood is what unites us. His shed blood is why we refer to one another as brother and sister. Moving on, in the second half of verse 12... Paul writes and he says that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for God, is for Christ. So Paul's dealing with this idea of perception versus reality. You see, there were those that saw that, as I said a moment ago, and said, you know, Paul is done, he's he's done for, He's, he's shackled, he's in prison. Now we can turn, if we find the location of Paul's imprisonment to be Rome, then you can turn over to Acts 28, just a couple pages to your left, and you can read about Paul and his arrival in Rome. You see, Paul arrives in Rome, and he lives there about two years. And he's not put into a jail cell. See, when you and I conceive of prison, we think of probably a six-by-eight cell. And our biggest hope and our biggest concern is that if we have a roommate, that we are larger than said roommate. So that if somebody's getting pushed around, it is us pushing them around and not the other way around. But Paul would have lived in a rented rented quarters and he lived there for two years. Now Paul had close quarters. You see at the other side of about an 18 inch chain was a member of the imperial guard. And so Paul was bound in chains around his waist and then about a foot and a half away from him stood a Roman Joe soldier. Now this imperial guard was one of Caesar's 9,000, roughly 9,000 men entrusted with the welfare and running of the city. And he, would, he was highly trained and specialized. And so this is who Paul's attached to. So it's interesting then that we read, and Paul says in verse 12, or the second half of it, that what has happened to me, namely being thrown in prison, has served to advance the gospel. Now, this is surely not what the people thought. This is surely counterintuitive to them as Epaphroditus brought the word back from Paul. And they said, wait, wait, hold on. Did he, I think what he meant to say, it's not served to advance the gospel. Papyrus. It's a faulty medium. It must have gotten wet. Epaphroditus, when he was talking about this, did you hear him say that it served to advance the gospel? Yeah, man, that's what I heard. said it like 15 times. Advance the gospel. Advance the gospel. Epaphroditus, don't you forget this. They're going to confuse this. When they say, did he mean advance? You say, that's right. He said, he said advance. He meant advanced. You see, the term Paul uses here doesn't paint the course of a flawless advance. Paul uses here a nautical term. and What it means is to advance despite blows. To advance despite obstacles. You see, our goal here at Ridgecrest is to advance the gospel. Amen? It's to advance the gospel. And we're going to have obstacles. We're going to have obstacles. I mean, it's just just very clear. There are going to be things that we encounter, be it the city, be it health, be it an air conditioner that fails, that represent 
obstacles, yet the gospel will be advanced. But this is where it gets difficult. You see, it's easy to point at these things like the air conditioner going out. And those of you who were here last Sunday really saw that as an obstacle to attention. Or we look at things that make, difficult, make it difficult. But when we look internally, and we start evaluating how, how Matt, how Dee, how Ed, how Ken, how John are an impediment, how we are an obstacle to the gospel, that's when it becomes difficult. You see, Paul calls us to introspection. He calls us to look inward and see where we ourselves might be impeding the progress of the gospel. Think to yourself. What are you doing to advance the gospel? Because it stands to reason that if you're not working to actively advance it, then it flows that you're working to prevent its flow. Some of us have addictions, some of us have hang-ups, and some of us simply just have unconfessed sin or a refusal to forgive those that have wronged us. And friends, I tell you today that as long as we hold on to those things, as long as we see those things as more important than the gospel, we will not be part of the advance. All we will be is an obstacle to those that are advancing the gospel. We need to get real before God. We need to be able to stand up and confidently say, it is well with my soul that Jesus has paid it all and I've confessed all my sins, that I stand before God, as Paul wrote earlier, seeking to be pure before a holy God and blameless for those in a marketplace. We need to be about the advancement of the gospel. Now, Paul says that it's advancing the gospel, this thing that has happened to him being put in jail. That's strange, but we'll accept it. And so he goes on and he says, this is where it's being advanced, throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, think of the gravity of this. The people in Philippi receive this letter, and Paul writes them, and he says, hey, the gospel is being advanced. I'm in jail, but check this out. The gospel is being advanced. If this is where it's being advanced, deep in enemy territory. You see, the Roman government at the time was the height of secularism. It was the height of, of a pluralism of gods. And this is the place where Paul was advancing the gospel. You think of the most secular, the most pluralistic, the most heathen place you could ever go, Paul's chained to one of those people that's, that's entrusted with supporting that infrastructure, supporting that way of life. 18 inches away from him is a man that stands for advancing that worldview. And Paul says, this guy, I'm advancing the gospel in this guy. You see, every four hours, the, the guard that was watching over Paul would rotate out. And we know from reading Acts 28 that Paul met with, he met with the elders of the, of the Jewish church we know that he met with other Christians in Rome. And so he's meeting with them. He has free exchange of ideas and conversation with them. And the whole time, this guy is standing 18 inches away thinking, that is the craziest thing I have ever heard. This guy's nuts. Why, why did they chain me to him? Can we chain him to a wall? I hope crazy is not contagious. 
you're not, you're not contagious, are you? But you are crazy, just to be clear. And so when I think about it, I think about Paul sharing all day, and then the night would roll around. Paul says, remember earlier when I was talking about, uh, when I was relating to the, to the Jews, and I said, this God that you worship, he sent a Messiah, he sent his son. Man, you, even as a Roman, even as a Roman imperial guard, can know him and can be saved. You see, Paul is a master at taking a spiritual conversation and creating it. Paul, who could take these chains and say, you see these chains that bind me to you, that to you are a representation of the power of Caesar in my life? To me, these bonds are a representation of my submission to Jesus. These bonds aren't Caesar's. These bonds are given to me by Jesus. And God begins to move mightily amongst the men of the imperial guard, and he begins to call them to salvation. You see, deep in enemy territory, Paul was steadily advancing. And he goes on and he says, not just them, but all the rest, and all the rest of the household, they're beginning to hear as well. Those who worked in Caesar's household are beginning to hear the message. Can you imagine being the first imperial guard? You're bound to Paul and you go back and you're like, all right, we knew the Jews were a little nuts. This guy is off his rocker. I mean, he is just, he's, he's taking crazy to the next level. There's crazy and then there's this guy. We need a new word. Let's call it, he, he, he went Paul. Hey man, don't go Paul. You know, don't go Paul on them. Paul's name starts to become a verb. But after time, after these two years, they begin to cycle back through and they see that he is living this message in his life. You see, it's probably really easy for the first week or two to look at his bonds and say, man, these are Jesus' bonds. But after a while, when they begin to rub them, begin to make him raw, and it, when the freedom that he experiences is great, but it's not, it's not freedom just to, to leave and to advance the gospel, which is Paul's desire. You see, it is in that minute, in that moment, that Paul's testimony is tested. You see, there are people watching us, and there are people waiting for us to slip up. And it is in the moment of trial, it is in the moment of advancing, in spite of obstacle, that we must stay the course. That we must seek out and find opportunity to boldly proclaim our Savior. Next in verse 14, Paul begins to point to continued advancement. The continued benefit of his imprisonment. He says in verse 14, And most of the brothers, having become confident <clears throat> in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. They're much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now Paul is likely talking about those people in Rome that have met with him, that have spent time with him, they've <clears throat> witnessed some of the imperial guard come to faith, some in the house of Caesar come to faith, and he says, hey, these guys are coming to faith. But see, as we read verse 14, I know certainly when I first started looking at it, I started thinking, you know, I've heard a lot of stories about different missionaries. I've heard stories about Hugh uh, Latimer or some of these early reformers of the faith. 
that when they were lit on fire, turned to the person beside him and said, Die the good death, brother. And we hear these stories, or we hear about people that are serving, they get sick and they die, and they're an encouragement to us. And somehow we say to ourselves that if they can do it, so can we. But that's not what Paul's saying. It's just not it. You see, what Paul's saying is that those people are bold are emboldened, that they are made bold through God. You see, God is the agent, God is the giver of the boldness that we feel. It is God who gives this boldness. It is God who, who allows them to do something. Uh, this word boldness, do something in spite of a natural feeling. So when that feeling of fear begins to, to well up in them, it is God that enables them. And the way that he enables them, it's an important distinction, but the way that he enables them is through the chains of Paul. You see, God is the one who gives boldness. Paul is just the messenger. God is the one who gives courage. Paul is just a visual representation. Paul is an object lesson so that those people around him can see him and take courage. And he describes the people around him, the people that see his imprisonment, that see him chained. And they are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You see, they see the situation that Paul is in, and what it wells up in them is boldness. And they speak the word. If you've read the Gospel of John, the word is Jesus. They speak Jesus. And so they're engaging people in the marketplace, and they're saying, you know what? You worship this God, but I worship a true God. And they begin to talk about what it is to be a follower of Christ. They find opportunities to turn mundane conversations towards the spiritual. You know, man, I used to have a really hard time uh, paying taxes to Rome as well. Rome can be a real, real taskmaster, can't it? Did I ever tell you about how I found freedom? How I found freedom in oppression. That's the type of conversation that they would turn. You see, what you and I need to be about, if we're going to advance the gospel, is the bold proclamation of the truth of Scripture. That's what we need to be about. If we want the gospel to advance, we need to share Jesus. Let me break this down for you. It's, 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 it's a little bit foolhardy to think that I would stand here and say, go out and share Jesus, and then everybody in this church would go out and, and do just that. You see, because there's this fear that wells up inside us, there's this nervousness that we get. And friends, until we start sharing our faith with our family and the people we encounter in our workplace, very unlikely that we're going to walk up to a stranger and say, <clears throat> let me tell you what God's doing in my life. Let me tell you how you can find freedom from sin. And so my challenge is this. Share in your family. If you're not already doing it, make a plan this week. Think of one person in your family that you can share your faith with. Sharing your faith is not lining people up and saying, all right, what we have here in Romans 3.23, all right, moving from there, we got, we have 6.23, all right, we got 5.8, all right, let me come on down here, hold on, oh gosh, oh gosh, don't, don't fail me now. 
Where's Google? You should be saved by now. Steve Jobs, where are you? You know, sharing your faith is more than just a steady recitation of the Roman road. Sharing your faith is more than just remembering the four spiritual laws, faith, EE, or, or whatever plan that you learned. Sharing our faith is a vibrant expression of what God is doing in my life today. Sharing our faith is saying, you know, I was a sinner lost in bygone days. I was saved. And this is how God is saving me today. You know, maybe you're going to help at preteen camp. You're like, man, this week I was at preteen camp and I was helping out the kids, and it was amazing to see their faces light up. Or something God has revealed to me is that I'm keeping a tight grip on my finances and I'm not trusting God. Or something God has revealed to me is that I'm a jealous, jealous person. And I'm really, wor- I'm really struggling with that. I'm working on that. Or just asking somebody, hey, can I pray for you? You see, we claim to have a direct line with the God of the universe. And it is a selfish thing to hold that with a tight fist. And so those of us who are already comfortable sharing with our families, my challenge to you is think of one person this week that you attempt to share the gospel with. You see, if we want to change this city, then we need to at least have an impact to those east and north of us. I was telling Ken this week that as I drive up the feeder and I drive past the psychic, the tarot card reader, that I burn inside, feeling the lostness of this neighborhood that our parking lot touches. I burn on the inside because I know that we don't have much of a presence in that neighborhood, and I burn because I know that the only way they can be saved is through Jesus. Would you join me in reaching our community? Would you join me in spreading the message of Jesus to those in Greenville? The challenge is laid. We need to share our faith with our family, but we also need to share our faith with those around us. Now, there are two groups that encounter Paul, and he moves into verse 15, and he offers us a word of, this is what typifies these two groups. He says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. So he lays it out, and it's just kind of this weird thing that you'd think that Paul would say, hey, look, some of these people, they're out there and they're preaching a false gospel to get easy converts with easy believism, and this is why they do it. Envy, rivalry. They're jerks. I hate them. I wish they'd go away. But these other guys, man, they're over here. They're goodwilling it. They're out and like, Jesus is fantastic. I tell you what, you can be saved from all your sins. Paul's like, these guys are on my team. I hate those guys. They're jerks. Good jerk. Maybe we shouldn't put those two close together. Good jerk. It's confusing. But anyway, so he writes and he says, he's still under this term of brothers. So he still says, hey, look, they're all Christians. They're all together. And we have some that are over here and they're advancing the true gospel out of a, out of a false motive. And then we have those over here that are exposing the gospel to the lost people from a good motive. That's strange to me. Paul says it's from envy and rivalry. Uh, I found a great definition for envy. Um, And this is the word Paul uses. It says it's pain felt and malignity conceived at the sight of excellence or happiness. That's a really fancy way that saying when you see something good happen to somebody else, you hate it. And that hatred gives birth to death. You never want to see something good happen to somebody else. 
Because when you see something good happen to somebody else, the only thing you can think is, I don't have that, and I want it now. Envy. They're preaching the gospel because they want more followers, because they want more people saying, you know, Joe led me to Christ, not Paul. Rivalry. They want a better ministry than Paul has. See, I talked to a mentor of mine a number of years ago, <clears throat> and I asked him, he's a, he's a pastor to, at a mega church, and I said, do you find it easy to make friends in ministry? Because I've often heard from a variety of pastors that they think it's a very difficult thing to be, to be friends with, uh, with other ministers, certainly. And he said, you know, this is something I actually really struggle with because it is so hard to be friends with a minister in your town. Because it's natural almost that envy wells up. So when we do a big evangelism campaign and 30 people come to Christ, he said, my friends in town see that and they say, we only have 15. Why is the Spirit of God moving more over there than here? You see, it's a, it's a sad reality that we would ever think that we are in competition with those who sound a lot like us and who are also advancing the gospel. This is why week after week I will continue to pray for those in our community. We will continue to pray that they do well, that they succeed, and that the gospel expands and that Jesus is proclaimed. So some preach it from envy and rivalry, but others preach it from goodwill. They preach the gospel, they proclaim Jesus because they want to see sinners get saved and people come to know Jesus in a real and saving way. Now Paul moves in in verse 16 and 17 to further define the groups. He says in verse 16, The latter do it out of love, this goodwill group knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my prison, imprisonment. So we come back to this. It's a difference between perception and reality. We have the one group that as they go out and they're proclaiming Christ out of goodwill, that they know exactly why Paul's in prison. You see, they don't just think, they don't just suppose, they know that he is there to make a defense for the gospel. They know that Paul is there, not because he was, you know, too boisterous, not because he wouldn't shut up when everybody's saying, Paul, you got to be quiet, man. Just let the heat die down. And then, you know, maybe in a month or two, you can start spreading the gospel again. You see, they knew that Paul was appointed, and we're going to get to this in chapter 2, but Paul was appointed to suffer for the cause of Christ. May we all be so lucky to suffer for the advancement of the gospel. They knew, they knew why Paul was suffering. He says some of them do it out of love and know that he's put there for the defense of the gospel. But the former proclaim it out of Selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. This, this word selfish ambition paints the picture of a, of a day laborer. A person who's really got no investment in, in the crop or the farm doing well, all they want is a paycheck. All they want is a reward. Their reward. 
They don't really care how things go once they're done working. This person is caught up with the motive of selfish ambition. And this is pretty sick. They think the better they do, the literal rendering is that it'll put more pressure on the bonds of Paul. That by spreading the gospel, they could make him more uncomfortable. That by spreading the gospel, they might cause him pain. You know, and the interesting thing is Paul doesn't say, and it just rolls off my back. He doesn't say, you know, that doesn't faze me at all. But I think the thing that would have bothered Paul is that they're, they're spreading the gospel from a false motive. And that, that pictures division in the body. That pictures division in the body. You see, some knew why Paul is in prison, and they shared from goodwill and from love and a sincere faith. These guys over here, they thought they knew, and they thought he was in there because he deserved it, because he was a braggart, because he didn't know when to shut up, and that he was suffering the just consequences of not knowing how to operate within the system. Paul pushed too hard, too fast, and that's why they thought he was suffering. We suffer, at least when it's for the gospel, we suffer because God allows us to suffer for the gospel. Amen? Now in verse 18, Paul has this to say at the end. He says, What then? Only then every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Essentially, he gets to the end, he's like, So what? So what? Philippians, you might be concerned that there are those out there that are, that are against Paul and those that are for Paul. But his heartbeat is this. His heartbeat is so strong with the advancement of the gospel that he says it doesn't matter. But whether in pretense, so whether it's those who go out and mask their motives, mask their intentions, they really only care about themselves, but they're, they know that the best way to build a better name is to advance the gospel, whether that's their motive and that's their their mode of operation, or whether it's those that go out and it's, it's goodwill and it's love and they know exactly why Paul is where he is. This is what matters. That Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. You see, we don't agree with everything that we see going on in, in the churches across our town, but what we pray for is that God would be proclaimed that a lost and dying world would hear the saving message of Jesus and would come to know him in a real and saving way.